Three, lecture 57, Rabbi Bleiweiss. In Rome, Nero is assassinated, back in Rome. Now you remember when we last left our heroes, the, we're, in the, we're in the thrall of the big, great revolt. The, uh, it's, we're in approximately in the year 66, 67, 68. The Romans, when we last left them, Tit um, Vespasian, the general in, um, from the north, his son Titus in the south, are coming slowly and systematically, as the Romans like to do. They were perfectionists about the way they operated in the world. The German Nazis are there, uh, not only ideological, but uh, often people people would say their their literal descendants is Asav, um, in being very very organized, orderly, systematic, efficient. And the Romans were everything. Every all of those adjectives uh, in, uh, embodied, um, and they are. Um, they're systematically going through, and we saw some terrible, terrible massacres. We also ended last time with Josephus' account of his own being a great general, of course, and his own uh, escape from Yotfat, where he's taken captive, and now uh, they're so impressed with him that they, he becomes the official historian of the entire period. The massacres in as, as, as far-reaching places from Yafo up to Tiberias, Tiberia, and um, and now and 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 they're closing in and they're starting. It's before the year seventy. They're starting to move in on Yerushalayim, Yer Kodesh. Go. Right, 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 right. So that's 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 we excellent excellent comment. So according to their accounts, he was assassinated. One way of reconciling it with the Gemara that says that he ran away was that he faked. Uh, this is what I have here. Chazal say he converted first, and the assassination was uh, a cover for his escape. That's, that's one way of reconciling it. Or it's one of our, alternately, we could say it's one of our messy, loose ends of history yeah, that we don't, really, we don't really understand. But um, is, that, is, that more, is that more believable? Or is that just more I don't really a, care. Uh, historian I, I, here's where I, I take issue with lots of historians who try to make compelling cases as if it's our job to sit in judgment and say, I think this is the most believable version, therefore this is history. I just present, as much as I can, the, the various versions. What's open to us, you can decide for yourself. I choose generally not to decide. I don't know. So I just say, here's what could be. I don't think there's a big nafkamina. Um, what we do know, though, is within a year, one year span of time, there were four Caesars. Uh, that's how they talk about um, you know <clears throat> job, job security, or lack thereof. Not, not a secure position, to say the least. Um, and Vespasian, the general, sets siege of Jerusalem. And uh, in Jerusalem itself, there is conflict between the Jews. Sinas Chinam, uh, generally directed against the Chachamim, who retire to the base Medrash, who don't endorse the fighting. Um, but many of the Jews are hotheads. They, are, they absolutely uh, take a strong stand. They want to fight. Um, and they're against the moderate Jews who refuse to fight. And we have, we have our means. They have their way of trying to make the moderates fight. So um, there were militants, including Rabbi Yochanan bin Zakkai's own nephew, joined the hotheads. Uh, sometimes even within, people's own, within one's own family, one can find the, uh, the, their enemies. So his nephew was, was uh, known as Ben Batiach, He's one of the Sakrikin. You remember the guys who went with the knives under their cloaks, randomly murdering? He's, he is also referred to as Abba Sikra. And they, um, they do something really shocking. Do you remember that there were these three wealthy families? 
the Ben-Gurion family and the Kalvasuvua family, uh, and the, uh, uh, give me a second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his name is Ben Tzitzis, he's a Hakesis, uh, the less, the less uh, known of those three families. So um, they had enough food stockpiled to last the city for years of siege, of hardship, and the militants, led by Abba Sikra, went into the storage, <coughs> storage rooms and burned all of the supplies. No more food. Wait, where did they keep it all? Uh, unclear. Locked away, but they, they, they found it. I can't think of anywhere in Jerusalem where there would be an area big enough to hold food for years. Well, what we see in Jerusalem is not what existed back then. If they burned down the storage sheds, the storage sheds are no longer around. No, no, I'm saying, like, even air, just area-wise, there's no, like, the whole food for... You can have multiple places. I don't know. Have you ever been to food. what's called, have you ever been to what they call Shlomo's quarries, alternately, um, Tzitkiyahu's caves? Oh, like, yeah. right near the Damascus. Right near Damascus yeah. Gate. For example, I'm not saying it was there, but that's vast. Huge, cavernous, underground areas. I don't know, but enough food for years for an entire city? That was what, that's the way it's described to us. Again, you'll take it with a, you'll take it with a grain of salt. Right, but uh, but that that they had they had massive food stocks. Um, it's described in Chazal as fourteen hundred storage rooms. That's a lot. Um, <clears throat> actually, and they, they more specifically, there was enough to sustain the city for twenty two years. It could be that Chazal are using what we call lashon guzma in exaggerated exaggerated terms, but there was a lot of food, and it was destroyed by these hotheads. And within a very short time, famine sets in. The Jews are starving. Uh, the descriptions include they start collecting snow so that they have water to drink. They eat straw that was otherwise used for animals. In one account, a wealthy woman named Martabas Baisus, and it's either the same Martabas Baisus, she comes up in a few different places at a few different times in history. She was, it was a similarly named woman who had bought the Kohen Gadol position for her husband. Maybe it's the same name, maybe it's the same person. Um, she is now hungry. And she sends her servant out for solitz, fine flour. And he comes back and he tells her, I couldn't find any of the solitz anymore. They don't seem to have any in the markets. All I saw was pasnikia, clean bread. It was the next grade down. So she said, well, go get that quickly. And he comes back and he says, but there was no more, no more of that anymore. All I found was paskibar, which is the next grade, uh, a poor man's bread. Uh, at that point, when she sends him out, now there's only barley left and he doesn't get that because he can't imagine his wealthy uh, patroness eating that. Finally, she doesn't have patience for him anymore and she goes out and she's barefoot. And she goes out to the marketplace. Suddenly, she gets stuck. She steps in a pile of cow dung. And for a wealthy woman, she's described as an istanis, which means a very uh, delicate, uh, spoiled kind of a disposition. And, she's, and she can't handle it. At the sight of this, she dies, like you said. Um, and as she is dying, she has a handful of gold and silver that she took out to buy whatever bread she could find, and she scatters it on the, on the ground by her feet, and she, uh, she says, her last words, ze lamali. What do I need this for? The gold and silver when I starve to death? Um, and watching the entire episode, sadly, without being able to help, was Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai himself from inside the city. 
And Chazal say he's so moved by this sight, he sees the militants, including his nephew, who are not moving, they're intransigent, they're intransigent, they will not, uh, they will not compromise, and he decides, I have to get out. I have to escape. And do whatever I can do to save the Jews. And that sets the scene for the next famous story that I imagine will be familiar to a lot of you. It's told in varying different ways. The most famous version we find in Gitin, but it's also in Eicha Rabba and Avos Rabbi Nassan. And here are, here I've, we've, I've woven together some of the major strands of the story. I mean, you know what the story, you know what I'm talking about? We're in this, Yavna. This is the one where he goes out in the car. Here we go, there we go. Abba Sikra, his nephew, you got it. Abba Sikra is, even though he disagrees in his own, in his own uh, radical way of doing things, he's sympathetic to his uncle. He knows his uncle's a big tzaddik, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. He's unable to help him escape. He says, I'm the leader. I can't help you go against our policy. Um, so they devise a plan. And uh, he's also, Abba Sikra wants to make sure that Rabbi Yochanan can do his good work and help the Jews survive. They circulate rumors that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai has died. His students, Rabbi Eliezer Hagadol, Rabbi, remember Rabbi Eliezer ben Herkinus, who cried his way into becoming a Gadolador, and Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania, carry the coffin with their supposedly dead Rebbe to the city gates. And when they get to the gates, the gatekeepers, the Shorim, are skeptical. You know why they have to go outside the city. In, according to Halacha, you're not allowed to bury the dead in the city, at the bury them outside the city, and they don't buy it. And they censor ruse, and they say, okay, let's just make sure your Rebbe's dead. We'll try to stab the coffin. That shouldn't be a problem. And Abbasikra comes, comes to the rescue. He tells them, what will the rabbis, what will, me, what will the Romans think when they see the Jews stabbing the coffin of their own rabbis? That's not exactly respectable. That's a chil Hashem. Now, one of the things you have to say about the militants, who are sometimes called the fanatics, the, the zealots, uh, is that they were from Jews. They fancied themselves as being firmer than everybody, and so this idea that they would be stabbing the coffin of their rabbis and how it would look in the eyes of the Romans moved them. And they said, okay, you got us there, but let's roll the coffin around to see if there's any movement inside. And Abbasukra says... Ah, so you want the Romans to think that you push your rabbis around, do you? So this persuades them as well, as well and finally, out of concern for Chil Hashem, for desecrating Hashem's name, they let the coffin go out of the city. The students, according to one account, leave the coffin in a cave. Some say they remain with him. Again, conflicting versions of the story. Eventually, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai finds Vespasian, and he bows down to him. Vespasian remembers the leader of the siege, and he says, Shalom Alecha Melech, Shalom Alecha Melech, Hail Caesar. Is that a lucky problem? Why? Yeah, we have a bracha we say by a non-Jewish king. Especially when you connect his malchus, his, his kingship, to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. If we encounter a human king, uh, if you were to see um, you know, a ruler, say the prime minister or president, potentially you would say a bracha. Because if you see, there's an aura around such a figure. When they have power, right, and they have, they have life and death in their hands. Today there's a question about, 
do really the rulers in a democratic society have life and death power? That's debatable. Yeah, well, she's just a figurehead. Yeah, for sure. She's just a figurehead. She doesn't have life and death in her hands. But if there was a monarch who really did control people's lives, um, that'd be worthy of saying a blessing. Certainly, there's no, there's nothing wrong with his bowing down. Um, Vespasian reacts as follows. He says, "Aha! Uh -huh, you're bowing now. You bow down to me. You, sir, are chayev misa. You're obligated for to capital capital punishment on two accounts. First of all, he says um, you are morad lamelech. You're guilty of insubordination against the real king. I'm not the Caesar. He's back in Rome." Vespasian explains, you "Can't bow down to me. That's against the law." Secondly, if I am the Caesar, what took you so long, buddy? Right? I've been here this whole time. What did you wait so long before you could come out and give me the proper honor? Um, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai answers. He, said, he says, first of all, you must be the Caesar. You must be the king. Hashem would not give Jerusalem to anybody of lower status. Do you remember this? First temple was destroyed. Babylon was not just any power in the world. It was deliberately the highest power in the world. When Hashem destroys us, it's not this like backhanded kind of way. He does it in style. Because he wants us to see it as coming from the Kaddish Baruch. It's not going to be a coincidence. Nothing that we're going to mistake. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai knows that. And he says, he says yeah, you, know, it must be, you must be the king. And second of all, I couldn't get out earlier. The zealots wouldn't let me out. And he explains his whole predicament. And um, Vespasian is somewhat charmed. He accepts a little bit of the explanation, enough that he doesn't kill Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai immediately. He imprisons him. I, I heard that it said that the king back in Rome actually died. Hold off. can't steal my thunder. Three days pass. Vespasian is bathing as the Romans like to do in their, bath, in their famed bathhouses. He's bathing under a grapevine. You can set the scene in your mind, right? Uh, and messengers come with the news that many days earlier, the Caesar had been assassinated back in Rome. And after the Caesar had died, the Senate had elected, without his realizing it, none other than Vespasian himself as the new emperor of Rome. Aha, so it turned out the rabbi knew something. He was right after all. Vespasian indeed was the Caesar, without even realizing it. Um, he becomes so excited that he tries to get dressed. He was bathing. And as he's dressing, he cannot get on his shoes. See, in his excitement, his feet had swelled. It happens sometimes. We have a kind of a psychological impact on our body, psychosomatics, uh, where the feet are overswollen, and now it's a diplomatic faux pas. What's going to be? The new king can't even get dressed, can't even put his shoes on. And he doesn't know what to do, and he said, hey, remember that smart rabbi guy? Call him. He can help me out of this mess. So they bring Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Uh, <coughs> and Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai tells him, Aha, I see your predicament. Um, do you have any enemies? This patient says, Enemies? Me? Enemies? Are you kidding? I got loads of them. He said, Bring the one you hate the most. This patient looked at his Bring the one I hate the most? What? what? He said, Just bring the enemy. So he brings the enemy. And uh, when Vespasian sees him, he seethes with anger. And in his anger, of course, the swelling goes down. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, like most of Chazal, understand all you know, psychology and physiology and biology and everything you need to know uh, to help people. And uh, Vespasian gets on his shoes without more problems. And he's so taken with the tzaddik, with this all-knowing uh, Talmud Chacham, that uh, 
he decides that he's going to do something good for him. He, before he does this, he prepares to leave to go back to Rome. Meanwhile, he appoints his son, Titus, to be the new general to fight for Jerusalem. He invites Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and he says, you can have anything you request. When I guide, what I usually say, you know, three wishes kind of a thing, and then I turn to the people I'm guiding, and I ask, you know, what would you wish for? What would you wish, wish for under the circumstances? Wouldn't you think? That's 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 a logical that's a logical one, and that we'll see we'll see what, why that doesn't figure. Say it again. I don't know about you. See, what I my version of the of the events. If I'm Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the first thing I wish for is I'd like a hundred more wishes, please. But that's me, and I'm very mature that way. The um, candy bar or something. But no, um, he wishes for something else, and not not explicitly, at least not in the famous version for Yerushalayim, in Echarabah. In the version of Rabbi, he actually does ask for Yerushalayim in the temple. So that's the version that you generally don't hear in this story. And Vespasian responds, he says, I can't. See, I didn't become Caesar to abandon Jerusalem. I can't give you Jerusalem. Even the Caesar has limits. Um, in another version, he asks for a clear passage through the western gate of the city to the, uh, to the, to the uh, other city near the airport today of Lod for all of his students to flee to. Um, that's one version. But the famous version is the one in Gitzin. It's the one presumably you, most of you have heard about in the story. He asks, not for load, but he says, Tedli Yavne Vichachameha, give me the city, not the city, the village of Yavne and its wise men. Now, what's, have you been to Yavne before? Yavne today is much bigger than it was then, but even today it's not much to speak of. It's a little nothing. Not even along the coast, it's sort of inland of Ashdod. Uh, KBY is there, Karen Biyavna is there, but it's not a significant location, and that was exactly the point. Uh, from Rebbe Yochanan, get this idea down, because this is one of the major themes that we've been playing on in all of history. Um, Rebbe Yochanan ben Zakkai says, I want something nondescript. I want a base medrash where we can sit and learn Torah, preserve Torah, and I don't want to be bothered, and I don't, I don't want to be beneath, under the radar. Right? We shouldn't be noticed. We don't need prominence, the Jewish people. We need quiet. We need to be able to go about our business of doing mitzvahs and learning Torah. And, and, and by doing this, the Jewish people will survive and eventually the Mashiach will come. And that's what he asks for. Tenli yavne v'chachameha. It's one of the most significant requests in all, the, in all of history. And the response, of course, is Vespasian laughs at him. And he says, you want yavne? You got yavne. I don't know if you had the Yiddish accent exactly. Uh, but, you know, no problem. Um, he asks in the Gemara and he says, please... Don't kill the Chachamim. Don't kill off the, the, the wise rabbis. And please keep the line of Rabbi Gamliel, um, because he descends from Hillel, who descends from David, and I want to make sure that that line survives. In another version, he also asks for medical care. Remember Rabbi Tzadok? Rabbi Tzadok has been fasting for 40 years uh, in anticipation of the Chorban, hoping to prevent it or at least stall it. After 40 years, fasting took its toll, and he needed doctors. These requests are all granted. Not a big deal. When he asks for Rabbi Gamliel's safekeeping, just to make a note of this, um, it's unclear. Does that refer to... Um, is that the deceased Rabbi Gamliel's line? But he's just making reference to Rabbi, Rabbi Gamliel because is, is Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel been killed at this point? Not so clear. Or perhaps the second Rabbi Gamliel, who we have not yet met, 
Was he, was he there? A little ambiguous. Um, but the Romans hear the request and they accept it and they honor their promise. And Yavna and the Nassim, remember the Nasi was the, was the figurehead position, the descendants of Hillel, they're preserved. Fair enough. Not the Davidic line that's going to lead to Mashiach, but at least for the immediate Talmudic period, the Davidic line that's going to be the figurehead, the leaders of the uh, Tanaim, and then late into the Amorai. You're good. Good. No, two good, very calls today. Those are those are absolutely important points. Yeah. And what's the fractionate year? We're closing, and it must be yeah, 69 yeah, and 70. Probably. By the way, in some accounts, it's, the temple was destroyed in 68. You always hear the number 70, but that's these are all still approximate. We mentioned this about the dates. As we get closer to modernity, the dates are going to be much more precise and within a smaller margin of error. At this point, I think the margin of error is approximately two years, give or take. Vespasian comes back to Rome. He's got a friend in, in tow. He's bringing back Josephus, this Yosef ben Matisyao. Um, he also has Agrippus II. Remember, Agrippus II is still sort of the Roman figurehead, the bad guy now, who's turned on the Jews. Agrippus has a son named Munbaz. Uh, it was a Greek name back then. We've heard of a few Munbazes so far. And they all go back to Rome. Vespasian is crowned the new king. And he turns on Agrippus II and his son Munbaz. And he says, you, my friends, are guilty of insubordination. He suspects them of treachery. It probably wasn't even real. But because they come from a Jewish heritage, uh, Vespasian doesn't trust them. And when they die, Agrippus II finally dies. Uh, not a hero to us. Um, when he and his son die, that effectively represents the end of Herod's line. We don't have any further descendants from Herod the, the wicked. Any Jew, though? Say it again. Herod? We don't. Um, what Herod may have done, what we described here, was that he had what Chazal referred to more like hear her tshuva. He thinks for a moment, oh no, what have I done? Remember, they t we told the story. Yeah, yes, he realized. What have I done? I killed up Chazal, and Baba Ben Buta really was a tzaddik after all. Tshuva still tshuva. No, well, hear her tshuva means he had a fleeting thought of tshuva, but don't worry, he got over it really quickly. It was not lasting tshuva. He had a thought of tshuva, and then a second thought, and never mind. But you're right, it counted on some level. He didn't, uh, wait, so what was the base of rebuilding the base of Yedeshim? Like counting towards. So I think one of the interpretations of that Gemara about Basra was here her tshuva itself, as small and seemingly inconsequential as it seems, is actually so significant just by thinking that you might make tshuva that justified his rebuilding the base of Mikdash. Because even against the current Caesar, again. According to the Gemara, true. So what about it? Nah, much more. But yeah, oh well, because he, he, he manages, right, he stalls for three yeah. years until the messenger gets back to Rome and it's too late. Was real. How did you just all that after Who said it's, I don't think that's much for the Gemara that Shuba lasted for three years. It's not clear. I, I, I think you're reading too much too much into it. I don't think it's clear at all in the Gemara how lasting. Even the, the Chazal don't even use the term here, Shuba. What's evident is he has a sense of contrition. He's a little bit ashamed over his actions. But then we find no lasting residual effect of that chuva. So evidently, he didn't really make chuva. Vespasian, the new Caesar, sends Josephus back to Titus, his son. And Josephus is meant to serve as an advisor, obviously from the inside out, knowing Judaism, knowing Jerusalem, knowing how things work. Titus surrounds the city. 
At one point, he is north of the city, within a few hundred meters of where we sit right now. Meaning, if you remember, do you remember where we pointed out the third wall? As we, we, drove to, or we walked past it on our tour a few weeks ago. So the third wall, not far from here, um, is near Heleni, the converts, the famous converts' tombs near Kivrei Malachim. If you can picture it, also across the street, and I'll just have to take you on a tour of East Jerusalem, and I keep promising you, Lee Nedder. Um, but um, yeah, but somewhere, what's that? Um, it's south of Shimon tzadik's tomb. What's that? Are you gonna take it to I really hope so. We we've done Lee Nedder, Lee and Harold, We've done it every year, so I hope to do it this year too. Um, not in the present situation, but I hope that changes. The um, so somewhere in that area, uh, there's a big skirmish. Titus. Uh, with his troops um, are savagely attacked and uh, almost defeated, but Titus gets away. It's um, one of many what's called Pyrrhic victories. The Jews win the battle and lose the war kind of a thing. You don't like to shame the Romans too many times. They get really angry and they take vengeance. And Titus now, very angry and very determined to destroy the Jews, builds a fortress in a place called Sophim, Sophim literally means where you can see Sofeh, the whole city. Um, there is a place over here in modern day called Har Sophim, Mount Scopus. Um, it's probably misleading the name because it's really all part of Mount of Olives, that whole mountain range. And Sophim could be, could be, it was probably a couple places. There was a specific place at one point in the Gemara referred to Sophim. Then there's excuse me, Harat Sophim, and then there's Sophim, which is any point from which, the last point you can see Jerusalem, which indicates maybe the whole circumference around the city. So we're not quite sure where this is. Maybe somewhere here, maybe someplace on a high mountain. In any case, Titus now builds a fortress where you can see the whole city. The 10th Roman legion encamps up on Harazasim, up on the Mount of Olives, looking into the Temple Mount. Romans now steadily make their way towards Jerusalem. And they breach the outer wall, the third wall, the one we just described as being relatively close to here. And then they breach the second wall. And they're getting closer and closer. And of course, when they breach the walls, why are there so many walls around the city? We discussed this when we toured Jerusalem. So much of this stuff is easy to do when you're touring. Do you remember the model? Can you picture the model that we looked at in the museum? Some of you were with me at that point. And I described how ancient cities were built. And when the city became too crowded, so then the logical thing to do was people built outside the city walls in a certain area. And when that became crowded, they enclosed it in a new wall. And then there was no more room there either. So they started to build outside that wall new houses. And then they built yet another wall. That explains the different phases of having different walls around the city. So of course, these areas are more peripheral. They're more fringe outside the city. They breached, therefore, the buffer zone of the, of the newer outer walls and very gradually encroached and, and got closer to the heart of the city. Of course, that being the Temple Mount itself. Daniel? Right, right, right. That's, so that, that the configuration, hopefully that, that, that becomes yeah, that's, that's explained. Um, <clears throat> the civil war now is taking place inside the city walls, Jews fighting Jews. Images from the curse, the klala in the Torah are coming true left and right. Uh, which is what we saw in the first temple's destruction, and it's every bit as real now in the second temple's destruction. Corpses line the streets. 
Famine sends many people scurrying, eating dirt. Um, some sneak outside the city walls where they find weeds, and they pick the weeds and start eating it and trying to, try to uh, find nurture, uh, sustenance in, in, in the weeds. The Romans kept, capture hundreds of such Jews who had gone outside the immediate city walls. They torture, they crucify them by the city walls, and they hang their bodies on display for everybody inside to see and be terrorized. And indeed, that's among the greatest terrorizing thing to see is to see your, 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 uh, your wife, your cousin, um, being crucified and staring at you and recognizing that may be your fate. At one point, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel, Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, the son of Rabbi Gamliel the Elder, who's the grandson of Hillel, so it's the great-grandson of Hillel, together with Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha, the Kohen Gadol, are captured and are slated for death. And as they wait for death, the first two of the ten martyrs of the Asara Haruge Malchus, they um, honor one another, each asking the Roman executioner, please spare him, take me instead. That's the way the Chachamim are, very courageous till the end. Um, and the ex executioner is frustrated and annoyed by these Jews, and suddenly, on a whim, he takes his axe and he decapitates Rabbi Shimon Gamliel, suddenly. And Rabbi Ishmael and Elisha takes the head of his friend and he wraps it and he holds it in his lap. And as all this is transpiring, it happens within a matter of seconds, nobody has time to think, Bas Caesar, the daughter of the Caesar's present, and she sees everything happening and she notices something about Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha. Do you remember when we talked about him? Beautiful. Beautiful. One of the most beautiful people ever to walk the planet. And um, the Gemara Nebodazara says, one of the seven most beautiful in the world. And she says, Abba, Father, spare him. He's too beautiful to kill. Who are the other six? Who are the other six? Yeah. Um, I refer you to Gemara Ovodazara, um, Yud Aleph Amun Beis. Can I the, email you? What's that? Can I email for sure. Okay. For sure. But it's so much easier to grab a Gemara. But I'm, I'm happy to answer it myself. Okay, Yud Aleph Amun Beis. You'll find the other six. The Caesar, of course, refuses. No, no, this man is slated for death. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do, sweetheart. Did I, did I give you a birthday present? Here's a birthday present. We're going to strip the skin from his face, and we'll save it for you. Um, and they do this. And they start to take his face off of his skeletal frame while he's alive, without sedative. And as they are doing this excruciating practice on Rabbi Ishmael ben Elisha, he doesn't move, he doesn't flinch, he doesn't make a noise. Only when they take his skin and get to the point on his forehead where the tefillin sits, and they remove that part of his face, does he suddenly let, oh, let out an excruciating scream of pain, not at the physical pain, but at the knowledge that he can never again perform the mitzvah. Even if the skin heals? He was being murdered in the, on the spot. There's no healing from this kind of, this kind of uh, torture. And they take his face, they preserve it in what they call a far simone, sometimes translated, I'm not sure we have, we know exactly what this was, some kind of uh, preservative, and they take it in a jar and they put it in the Roman treasure house. Uh, it's observed sometime later in history. 
that jar it still may be there for all we know. A farsimon is sometimes translated as persimmon, uh, sometimes as balsam. Could be balsam, that's a preservative. The uh, third, sometime later, the third of the Asari, Asara Haruge Malthus is Rabbi Hanina, the Skana Kohani, the assistant Kohen. The other seven are debatable who's who, and we'll talk about them. They come much later. One of the confusions in the list of the ten martyrs is they all were killed around the same time, and it's not true. The first three all die around the time of Chorba Mesa Mikdash, the destruction of the second temple. The others much closer to the Bar Kochva revolt a couple generations from now. When the Romans finally breached the walls on the 17th of Tammuz, the final walls inside the city, on the Anyudzain uh, on, on Tammuz, um, the same day, the Korban Tamid stops permanently. And we've never had a Korban Tamid since then. It's one of the five reasons we fast on the 17th of Tammuz. And on the same day, Titus breaks into the north west of the Temple Mount where the Antonia Fortress that Herod built stands and he destroys it. On that day, would it make like, like a covenant across the wall? And a pig I missed some of the words. Say it again. Would it make say like a cow across the wall and a pig instead? No. Different story and not, a, not to my knowledge associated with Yudzai Matamas and we told it here I don't think you were here that was uh, during the days of Hyrcanus and Aristobulus the two last sons uh, of, of Yanai and, and, and Shalom Sion who were fighting different story um, Titus though at this point avoids taking the Temple Mount he probably could have and he didn't um, now <clears throat> defenders set fire to some of the buildings to keep the Romans at a distance. Just Titus was unsure. The building was of such significance. You remember what the Roman archives wrote. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It wasn't clear to him that in order to destroy Jerusalem, to capture the Jews, you needed to touch Jerusalem. You needed to touch the base of Mikdash. That's one explanation. Now, what happens next? There are a couple different versions. If we believe Josephus, and I encourage you to be very skeptical of everything Josephus writes, but in Josephus' account, it works like this. On the ninth of Av, Motzi Shabbos, seventh year of the Shemitah cycle, a soldier, uncommanded, lights the fire that ultimately destroys the base of Mikdash. The way Josephus has it, it was an accident against Titus' will. Uh, and against his express order. In fact, as Josephus tells it, Titus tries to extinguish the fire, I'm quoting, with all of his might. Um, that's Josephus' version, and not only is it explicitly contradicting Chazal's version of the story, it even contradicts the other Roman versions. The Roman historian Dio Cassius, the non-Jew, he says, no, no. Despite the Roman oppositions to destroying the temple, it was Titus who wouldn't relent, and Titus insisted on destroying it. And Chazal certainly tell a very different story if you know the Gemara and Gitin again. Immediately after the breach, Titus is not a hero at all. This is really what he does. He enters the compound, he goes right into the Mikdash itself, through the Ulam into the Heichal, which is the Kodesh, and back all the way to the Kodesh Kadoshim, to the Holy of Holies. 
and he screams up defiantly at a, at a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and he screams, Locus, locus, you wolf. Who used the same term referring to a Kaddish Baruch Hu? Locus, locus. Miriam, the Greek, from the house of Bilga, one of the 24 Mishmaros of the Kohanim, who told the story uh, by the Greek persecutions. She also called it Kaddish Baruch Hu, locus, locus. Good advice. Don't do that. Doesn't end well. You remember what happened to her family? They, they turned their rings upside down. They did all kinds of punishment for the whole family. Why um, do you not die? <coughs> Kaddish Baruch Hu has his ways. Everybody, every time and every place in its own circumstances. Wait till he'll hear the whole story of what happens Wait, to Titus. If he doesn't die, then he has no reason to think that for any reason why he just Hold up. Hold up. Let, hear the whole, whole the package and suspend judgment. So he screams to Hashem, Locus, Locus, you're a king and I'm a king. Let's make war. Um, he screams a number of, number of crazy things. He says, Aye Elokema, where is their God? I don't see him. In fact, he declares defiantly to his soldiers, I fought the, their God in his own house and I won, I beat him. He takes a Zona, a woman, a harlot, some say he takes two, into the Holy of Holies. He spreads out a Sefer Torah, a Torah scroll, and with these women he does unspeakable acts right there on the, uh, right there on the Sefer Torah. He then proceeds to go over to the parochis, to the curtain, um, and he slashes it, and it starts to bleed. Titus assumes, I've killed Hashem. And he boasts, and he takes the curtain out and parades it. Look what I've done. Very proud of himself. He steals two of the golden menorahs, the Shulchanos, the Mizrakim, the Big Day Kodesh, the Holy Vestments, the Parochis, and the other clay Kodesh. And with, and with that and the menorah, he carries them back to Rome to show off his greatness, his mastery, his valor. And the base of Mikdash, he leaves behind, it burns through the sunset of the 10th of Av, leaving the walls of the city and some of the other structures, but causing tremendous destruction, much more than the first temple. Um, unlike when the first temple was destroyed and the Shekhinah departed, at this point, the Shekhinah never fully departs. The Kedusha of Yerushalayim remains till today, but the temple now is destroyed. I heard the bloody, uh, the bloody uh, sheets are in, uh, are in the Vatican. In the Vatican. That may be, we'll talk about it at a future day. Um, we have testimony. Um, we'll hear it uh, shortly. We'll talk about that. That, uh, what did he, what did he make out? Two golden menorahs, the Shulchanos, the Mizrakim, the Parochis, and other clay codes. I mean, picture, what? There were a ton. Yeah, there were many. There were many of them, but he, he made off with two of them. Testifying, of course, we know we know this is true, is of course the Arch of Titus, which as a document, as a, as a, as a memorial, shows the depiction of the soldiers carrying the artifacts back to Rome. The Medrash tells us, the Midbar Rabbah, had the non-Jews known how wonderful the Beis Mikdash was for them, of course for the Jews, but for the, the people of the world, for the universe, they would have erected barriers. They would have posted permanent guards to protect it, to make sure nothing bad happened to it. The Gemara Sukkah tells us that the water libations, the Nisuch every year that the Jews bring by Sukkot, 
make sure that there's rain for the entire world every year. Um, we're the only nation in the world and the only religion without plans to conquer the world. We don't want to convert the world. We're not a proselytizing religion. We're the only real non-exclusive religion. Um, Which uh, Drew, I mean, but Drew, the Druze don't at all. What's that? Druze. But the Druze don't acknowledge that there's legitimate non-Druze. They don't. The Jews say there's a category called Hasidei Umos Olam. Non-Jews can have a righteous destiny in this world and therefore an important portion in the next world. And that's fine. And they don't have to convert to Judaism. Um, and this notion that um, when the Jews are here in really a tiny sliver of land, we don't take up much room, honestly, and we're here doing what we're supposed to be doing, doing our voda, it actually redounds to the benefit of everybody. Uh, but I'm, the point I'm trying to give over is it's not a selfish, uh, conquest-oriented um, religion and worldview. Contrary to what they claim in the protocols of the elders of Zion and the other anti-Semitic uh, statements that we're really a controversy, a conspiracy trying to rise up and, and swallow the world. It's not, none of that's true. Wait, well, uh, is Titus like one of the worst people ever? We'll get back to Titus. Did he do anything good? Not that we know of. The Gemara sees, doesn't see much redeeming value in the man. To finish the point that we were talking before, the, um, according to the, most of the non-Jews in the world, the only path to salvation is their own path. Uh, but the Jewish, the Jewish version is not like this. As the destruction is taking place in Yerushalayim, in Yavne, one of the only sites with immunity, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai and the other Chachamim hear of the bitter news of the Chorban, and they weep and they tear Kriya. The Roman soldiers in Jerusalem continue to fight. The city is not destroyed even with the destruction of the temple. They actually have no choice. The Romans made a decree. Whoever does not slay will be slain himself. So if you want to live as a Roman soldier, you have to, you have to murder and, and, uh, and destroy. The last part of the city is the upper city, what we consider the Jewish quarter of today. They hold out all the way into Elul, another month after the Chorban. Um, at this point, almost everything's destroyed with the exception of three towers near today's Jaffa Gate, the Hippocus, the Miriam, and the Faziel. Um, the consensus opinion is that tower that stands, we stood on top of in the David Tower Museum, um, is the Faziel Tower that still stands. The Romans were, the word didn't exist yet, but the Romans, to our modern sensibility, would be what we call genocidal. They would not rest until the last Jew was either captured or murdered. They scoured caves. They scoured tunnels for survivors. Josephus put the number of dead Jews at 120,000. The Romans come in with fanfare and celebration. They built pagan altars on the Temple Mount. They sacrificed to their gods. The only remnant that was untouched was the Kosal Maravi, the Western Wall. The Shekhinah is in the west, the west being the closest to the Kodesh Kedoshim. But we know that a lot of the other walls seem to also somewhat survived. At least they were rebuilt. And there's Kedusha there. We know what else, what else remains of the temple area. Um, we know that the Shushan Gate in the east survived. The Hulda Gates in the, uh, in, the, in the south at least partially survived. What's called the, Hippic, uh, the Hikponus Gate, uh, Gate on the west survived. Um, 
the Great Revolt continues for another few years. Jews hold out in three fortress areas in the east, uh, or actually south and east. South um, in Herodian, um, the, they hold out until ultimately the Romans set siege and they destroy Herodian in 71. Michvar is over in today's Jordan, holds out till 72, and the final site to fall in the year 73 is Masada. And they're horrific, horrific images. The refugees are killed in flight or they're enslaved in Rome. They're marched through the city streets. They're tortured for Titus's amusement. Famous story of 400 boys and girls were on a ship, slated not, not for slavery in this case, they knew their fate. They were going to be used as prostitutes, both the girls and the boys. And it's part of the discussion on, on suicide. Was this an okay thing? The eldest boy was the greatest tour authority. They'd look to him for guidance. What do we do under the circumstances? He darshans some psukim that this is a yeharag valyavor. This is one of those that a person has to die for. And the girls, women generally having greater amuna, um, hear this and immediately jump to their deaths overboard. And the boys then... Hear, see what the girls do, and they say, hmm, well, girls are going to be used as zonos. We will be used for hmm, uh, other things that are even more horrifying, and um, so they then jump over to their deaths as well. The uh, Rabbi Tzadok is taken to Rome. Uh, he's held prisoner. A matronisa. They had these wicked Roman patrons. They come into many Agatic stories in the Gemara, these wicked Roman patrons. Who um, do the, who, who, they, they devise all kinds of schemes. She's a prutza. She sends Rabbi Tzadok a beautiful prostitute and tries to seduce him. She's playing games with him. She doesn't understand spirituality and she wants to show that even the most spiritual people have a breaking point and at every seduction he resists her charms and, uh, and, and shocks the matronisa. Um, Rabbi Yishmael ben Elish the Kohen Gadol, the martyr, has a son and daughter who survive, but they're sold into slavery. And each of the owners see their beauty. They each had inherited their father's beauty. And they figure, oh, you know, let's capitalize this. We could make them and produce many such beautiful slaves. We'll make a lot of money. So they don't realize that they're related. They send them in the room together to mate. And the brother and the sister look at each other and realize what has happened. And they weep so bitterly that their neshamas depart. And they die. Um, would you permit me to go a little bit over time and I'll finish the story of Titus? Round out a little bit? Hey, can you say something good about him? I never found anything good, so I can't say it. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, but I don't, I don't, because all, sometimes that happens, that they don't include any, any, any uh, redeeming virtues. He saved Yavna. Come on. Right. He honored his father's promise to spare Yavna. Good. Jake came up with it. Okay, in 75, Vespasian dies. He's the first Caesar uh, since Julius Caesar to die a natural death. All of them had been murdered in some foul wage. Since Julius Caesar, Vespasian's the first to die a natural death. Some, some explained, yeah, Julius Caesar, um, yeah, was murdered. No, he was, he was assassinated. Um, some, some explain that Vespasian dies, dies peacefully because of his treatment of Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai, and his son Titus becomes the Caesar. Berenike, do you remember her? The sister of Agrippus II? 
she survives. And she goes back to Rome and she moves in with Titus. She had these different qualities. On the one hand, we started defending the Jewish people, but she had a very clear Roman assimilated aspect to her. And she all but becomes his wife. But the Romans don't accept this Jewish woman uh, that's attached to Titus. And so ultimately, how do we say it? The relationship didn't work out. So uh, Titus sends her back to Judea with vast wealth and land holdings. Um, and in fact, the area that she holds is a place today called Har Berenike that overlooks Tiberius. Um, is described when, it, when, when the Targum describes Devorah, the prophetess's great wealth, it actually describes the area of land that we know is associated with what Berenike held. So some explain maybe uh, that there was a connection, maybe there was some connection. Um, meanwhile, Titus, as a Caesar, has something very interesting happen to him. The Gemara tells us a tiny little gnat flies into his nose and proceeds to buzz there. You know that feeling when a gnat comes, or you know, trying to go to sleep at night, goes into your ear? The gnat buzzes in Titus's nose. And at first it's a mild annoyance, but it doesn't go away. And he slowly, like a Chinese water torture, starts to go crazy. He's walking by a hammersmith one day, and the steady motion of the hammer finally gives the gnat some rest. And Titus finally finds solace, so he hires the hammersmith full-time in the palace to hammer. And that's what the duration of his kingship um, was a hammer in the, in, in the palace as, as, uh, as a way of, 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 uh, of, of quieting, of silencing this, this, this horrific gnat. Um, he dies seven years later. They cut open his head and they find not a gnat, the creature the size of a small bird. And of course, the message is unmistakable. The one who bragged at having slain the creator of the universe, who minted coins, that we still have a lot of these coins, Judea Capta. We, ca we captured Judea. He's destroyed. He's downed by a tiny gnat. That's the fate. So Kaddish Baruch has different ways of dealing with his Rashaim. Tomorrow, we'll try to take stock and figure out this greatest of calamities Without any question, the great calamity that endures till today, what its significance is for Kalal Yisrael.